would provide Gillows with clocks and they would provide him with cases. A uniting of the families and a uniting, if you like, of the actual artifact, the clock and the case. In 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums, we're delving into the collections to discover objects that can tell us stories about the past and make us think about the present and future. I'm Rachel Roberts, Collections Registrar at Lancaster City Museums. Today's object combines skilled mechanical engineering with master cabinet making to form something which is steeped in Lancaster history and can tell us about two significant families and one of the most successful furniture companies in the UK. Today's object is a long case clock. The long case clock is made up of two parts, the clock mechanism and the case. All that can be seen of the mechanism from the outside is the dial, which is round and somewhat plain compared to other clocks from the period. It has a painted face, which is white with black markings around the edge to show the time, minutes in numbers around the very edge, and hours in Roman numerals in an inner circle. At the centre of the face are two more circles of numbers with their own hands, to show the seconds and the date. These smaller circles are surrounded by delicate designs of swirling foliage, also in black. The case is made of a rich red-coloured wood. It was made by Gillows of Lancaster and stands over two metres tall. Most of the body is made from undecorated pieces of wood, polished so that the grain of each piece shows through. There are thin ribbed columns running up each side and four more segmented columns flanking the dial. The top of the case features carved scrolls and a central urn shape. We spoke to Susan Stewart, author of the definitive book on Gillows, to find out more about the clock, the company and the people behind it. She started off by telling us about the clock itself, which is actually a collaboration between Gillows, who made the case, and another eminent Lancastrian who made the mechanism. This clock is by Thomas Warswick, and when he came to Lancaster... He was described as a watch movement maker. And then he became a watchmaker and a clockmaker, a silversmith. He also, importantly, founded a very important bank in Lancaster. And in fact, when he died in 1804, he wasn't described as a clockmaker or a watchmaker. He was described as a gentleman. He came from the Great Singleton area, the same area that the Gillows came from originally. And he married Alice Gillow, who was the daughter of the founder of the Gillow firm in 1756. Both families were very strong Roman Catholics. From the mid-1750s, he would provide Gillows with clocks, and they would provide him with cases. So you have a uniting of the families and a uniting, if you like, of the actual artifact, the clock and the case. The clock itself is in a gillow case, a very elegant, very tall, very slim, nicely proportioned case. It has a circular dial, and that is quite interesting because... They were introduced in about 1774. 
I know that it couldn't have been made until about 1784 because of the style of the pediment, that is the head of the clock, which has scrolls. They introduced the scrolled pediment a couple of years before that. There is a drawing of it in the Gillow Archives of 1786, alongside an estimate of all the materials, the journeyman who made the original and the price he was paid, the price of the materials, etc. But that wasn't the price that the customer would have paid. They would have then added their profit. Even if you happen to have a clock which says Thomas Warswick on the dial, this doesn't necessarily mean it's in a Gillow case because the customer could go to many other cabinet makers in Lancaster. Whereas in some towns, clock case making was a separate branch of the trade. In Lancaster, it was simply something that all apprentices learnt. So Thomas Worswick was successful in his own right, but was also part of the Gillows family, who founded one of the most successful and well-known companies in Lancaster's history. Susan took us back to where it all began. Robert Gillow Sr., the founder of the firm, came to Lancaster from Great Singleton in around 1720. He was apprenticed by his mother, who was a widow, to a joiner in 1721-2. And when he'd finished his apprenticeship in about 1728... He then set up his own business. Like so many merchants and tradesmen who lived in Lancaster, he also exported his goods. So he was a West Indies and also a merchant of Riga and in Russia, etc., and bringing back materials such as mahogany, etc. He had several sons. The most important one from the point of view of cabinet making, was Richard Gillow, who was his eldest son, born in 1733. He was apprenticed, not as you would expect, to a cabinet maker, although, of course, he was, in a way, because he'd been brought up in the cabinet trade. There is a letter which refers to Mr. Jones, my old master. Now, Mr. Jones was not a cabinet maker, but he was an architect. William Jones of London, we think. So part of his time as a young man would have been spent in London. During that time in London, he also acquired design books on furniture that he would have used to make his first designs. When Richard came back having learnt the trade of an architect around 1756-7. The pair of them, Robert Gillow and Son, as it was called, traded as partners. Now, he had a brother who was a few years younger called Robert. In 1769, their father gave his share in the business to Robert. So Richard and Robert became equal partners then in the firm. Now that the two brothers were head of the company, they began to branch out in both the products that they sold and where they sold them. They were energetic young men. 
They were involved in so many things. They designed several billiard tables, which are all described in the Gillow archives. Those particular billiard tables could be made in any shape, any size, Sometimes they were made just to stand on an ordinary dining table. But one of the interesting things they did was to design a portable one. Richard Gillow wrote to the brass founders in Birmingham and he sent a design so that the feet or legs could be raised or lowered because, of course, a billiard table needed to be absolutely flat. Each leg, if it was on an uneven floor, could be a different height. They also had two cousins, James Gillow and Thomas Gillow. James went to London, and we don't know who his master was, but it was not far away from the famous Thomas Chippendale and various other people who were really instrumental in perfecting designs of furniture, which were then copied by other cabinet makers. First of all, James acted as an errand boy for his cousin, Richard in Lancaster. So Richard wrote to him and said, please send me any new designs for chairs and any other furniture from London. And this is what he did. Thomas, he went first of all to Liverpool, and this is where it all comes together. In 1768, Thomas went to London in order to promote the billiard tables. And he was joined by Richard Gillow's brother, Robert. And these would go literally to the lords and ladies right across the kingdom. They went as far as the West Indies and they became very well known for this. And just about every man of importance in London seems, as far as I can see, to have ordered their billiard table for their townhouse in London and for their country house Thomas decided that he would like to set up a business in London, along with somebody who was an ex-Gillow apprentice trained in Lancaster called William Taylor. Gillows and Taylor, 176 Oxford Street, opened in 1770. And they soon hit on a very interesting ruse, which was to make furniture in Lancaster, which could be made cheaper than it could be made in London. A customer could order furniture made in London, or they could ask that it was made in Lancaster, and Gillows had a ship that they sent down to London every week, loaded with furniture that they made in Lancaster. It would only take the length of time to send a coach with some drawings to Lancaster, for them to copy these drawings and to be making the same thing. But the company was not destined to stay in the hands of the Gillow family for much longer, though the Gillow name would survive. After a few years, William Taylor became ill. He died in about 1775 to 1776. But then a few years later, Thomas too became ill, and then he died. And this left Richard and Robert in charge of the London shop and the Lancaster shop. 
But by this time, they had their own sons, and then that next generation uh, was able to go down to London and to help them. But in 1813, the Three brothers who were the third generation, they moved out of business. Richard purchased Leighton Hall near Carnforth. George, he stayed in London and started to buy antiques, basically. And the other brother, Robert, purchased Clifton Hill, which is not that far away from Lancaster. There were four people, in fact, who took over the firm in 1813. Leonard Redmayne who'd been apprenticed to Gillows, Ferguson, and the Whiteside brothers. And they kept the name Gillow. Over the years, other partners took over until 1897, because there was an amalgamation between Warings of Liverpool and London and um, Gillows of Lancaster and London as Waring and Gillows. Now, Waring and Gillows continued, and of course they opened branches throughout the country, but in the early 1960s, the workshops closed in Lancaster. In the mid-1990s, the branch actually closed in Lancaster. One of the reasons that Gillows is so well known is the fact that they left archives, sketchbooks importantly, but also letterbooks, account books of all different sorts, and things called petty ledgers. Now, these were what the workmen did and who they were, agreements as to how much they would be paid, what they actually made. The archives they left begin in about 1730. The very last book, I think, finishes in the 1930s, which would be, of course, when Waring and Giller were there. These are the longest, the largest and the most important records of any cabinet makers or upholsterers, not just in Lancaster, not in London, but in fact in the world. They are now in Westminster Archive Centre in London. To finish off, Susan told us about some of the notes and brief mentions found amongst business letters that have let her get a small glimpse of the Gillow family life. I mentioned the letter books. At the end of some of the letters, you get rather charming little notes because if you were writing to a sea captain or you were writing uh, to a merchant and things, they would all know each other and you would ask how their family was and you would tell them any family news. So Richard Gillow mentioned that his wife had just had a fine baby girl (laughs) and uh, all is well. And that was their eldest child. Richard and his brother, when they were living in Lancaster together, they would try and encourage their children to become interested in the business. And there's a little letter which just says at the end, we encourage our youngsters to fill some little boxes with various things for you to sell in the West Indies. Richard would give his son and daughter, the eldest ones, a little bit of money and they would be encouraged to purchase things that they could then sell in their own right to the West Indies. So that gave them an interest in whatever the voyages were. People who are interested in the education of girls 
I think a very important fact was there was a, a, a very forward-thinking ideas as far as how they would educate their daughters. And they would treat them in some ways as importantly as they did their sons. Now remember, they were Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics had to make their own arrangements with how their children were educated. They weren't allowed to go to Lancaster Grammar School if you had a boy. But Richard sent his daughters to a convent school in York. He had quite an artistic daughter. He would hang her paintings and drawings on the walls of their house in Lancaster. Thank you so much for exploring the mysteries of time with us in this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There's lots more to get your hands on in other episodes where we look at everything from factory workers to felt hat makers.